if you have a Bible with you, uh, maybe you could grab it and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. While you're finding it, and it might take you a little while, uh, let me just very quickly set the scene for what we're going to be talking about today. I think it was about uh, 20 years ago now, uh, straight after I'd graduated from university, uh, I was invited to spend six months in a Bible school in India. Now, it was a phenomenal opportunity. Uh, I said yes, I seized it with both hands. Now, I don't know if anyone here has ever been to India, but I still remember landing in Bombay as it was then, Mumbai as it's called now, in the middle of the night, feeling kind of slightly groggy and disorientated, immediately having all of my senses assaulted by the extreme heat, noise, and this wall of smell. And then leaving the airport in the middle of the night and straight away being surrounded by beggars, kind of thrusting their hands into my face wherever I went, pleading for money. Many of them were young children. A lot of them were badly maimed. It's like the poverty and the pain and the suffering was inescapable. It was kind of right there in your face the whole time. But the other thing that struck me pretty much straight away was the sheer number of shrines to different gods. They were in people's houses, in restaurants, beside the road, even in the middle of the road. Everywhere you looked, there were these shrines to these pretty grotesque statues and idols. I mean, it was absolutely tragic. For all the pain, for all the suffering... For all the poverty, it was as though all of their hope was placed in something they'd made. Their hope was put in these hideous man-made idols that could do absolutely nothing to help them in their hour of greatest need. And they were completely blind to this, completely oblivious to the futility of it. They, They just couldn't see it. And then One day, I was chatting with one of the church leaders out there, and I just casually asked him whether he had ever been to the UK, and he said he'd been once, but really never wanted to return again. And I asked him why, and he told me that, quite honestly, it was because he couldn't stomach the idolatry here. I said, what do you mean you can't stomach the idolatry? And he said, well, the English, they worship their sports teams, celebrities, their houses, their sex life, their body, their income, their appearance, their stomach, their houses, their car, their gadgets, their clothes. He just went on and on and on. You know, maybe we can see idolatry in the lives of others far more clearly than we can in ourselves. It's like we can be so completely immersed in our own culture that we can't see the stupidity and foolishness in our culture. So, in exactly the same way as the Indians have their shrines and their statues and their idols, we've got our very own grotesque idols that we put our faith and our confidence and our trust in. And that's what I want to talk about today. So let's go to Habakkuk chapter 2. If you remember from last week, God has been pronouncing 
judgment on the Babylonians and basically says that the people that the Babylonians have conquered and oppressed are going to rise up against them, overthrow them and destroy them. And on this day of judgment, on this day of woe, they're going to be in serious trouble for a number of reasons. Here's what God says. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman? or an image that teaches lies. For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Now, I guess we can read that and be sitting there feeling pretty smug. I mean, thank God we're not as primitive as these people who'd cut off this kind of small object out of wood or something and then bow down to it and look for it to save them and make them happy and fix all of their problems. But as we've seen already, we're actually guilty of much the same thing. We're we're just as prone to creating idols that we put all of our trust in. I want to give you a few examples. First of all, there are personal idols. Just to say, None of these examples that I'm about to give you are wrong in and of themselves. Idolatry is just this funny beast because it rarely dwells in morally dark things. It almost always dwells or lives in positive things that erroneously we make ultimate things. It's like we have this tendency to take something that's a good thing and elevate it to the position of a God thing, which then makes it into a bad thing. So the problem isn't these things, these examples I'm about to give you in and of themselves. The problem is when you take any one of these things and make it the source of your security, your meaning, your hope, your peace, and your identity. Take appearance, for example. Taking care of yourself is a good thing. Eating well is a good thing. The Bible would call both of these things wise. Even the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says, physical training is of some value. But when your value and your security and your identity, and your self-worth is wrapped up in your appearance, then that becomes a problem, especially as you get older and your hair starts coming out and wrinkles start appearing and your waistline starts expanding. It's like your appearance, it just kind of crumples up and falls off. Now, I think it's fed, so I've been told. Now, I think it's fair to say that some of us don't have a lot going for us when it comes to appearance. I mean, it's just not going to be a temptation for us because, let's be honest, however much money and time we throw at it, it's not going to happen. And so a lot of us go to intellect instead. Now again, I want to be very clear about this. Please be thinkers. Please seek out truth. Please do all you can to really get to the bottom of things and understand stuff. But this can as well very easily 
turn itself into an idolatry where you're not going to believe anything that you can't physically taste, touch, see, prove, or understand. It's like our mind and our skepticism becomes our idol. And then, closely related to appearance and intellect, is this whole third thing that, that's still about you, but it works itself out in pretty much every area of your life where you want to throw out a certain image or a certain vibe. So, from the car you drive, to the clothes you wear, to where you live, it's like all of that is carefully thought through and constructed to produce what you want other people to see, despite the fact you don't even like most of those people, but you still care what they think of you. Incidentally, I think for a lot of people, not everyone, but for a lot of people, debt isn't primarily a money issue, it starts off as an image issue. I think a lot of people spend more than they have to look a part that they want to look because they believe that by looking that part, somehow they project to the world that they're worth something and they're legitimate. And that's a form of idolatry. Money and career can also be an idol. And again, just want to labour this point. There's nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves. Nothing wrong with money. Nothing wrong with pursuing a career. Would that more people in the church here carried more influence in the workplace, uh, shaping things and influencing things from the top down. But when you start bowing down and sacrificing to these things, then that's when it becomes a problem. You know, All over this city, child sacrifice is going on every day. It's like, if you want to succeed, you have to sacrifice your family. If you're going to get more money and more power, you must sacrifice your children on the altar. Another idol could be romance. Now, I think there's this common myth, isn't there, that there's someone out there who is going to complete you. Like, if you just find this one right man, or if you just find this one right woman, then everything that's plagued you, and all of your problems, and all the loneliness that you've walked in, and all the rejection you've experienced will just magically vanish. Just so you know, if you think that, I don't mean this harshly, but if you think that, all the married people laugh at you because it's simply not true. Let let me quickly chat with all the ladies here. No man will ever be able to do that for you. And when you put that expectation on him, it becomes this smothering, exhausting, crushing expectation because he just can't do it. He can't live up to that. It doesn't matter how romantic he is, doesn't matter how creative he is, doesn't matter how careful and thoughtful he is, he can't be that for you. And he wasn't ever meant to be that for you. That hole in your heart you feel, that ache you're aware of internally, 
book of Ecclesiastes says it's for eternity. It's like only what is eternal, only what is beyond us can fill that gap of eternity. And your husband, as great as he is, isn't eternal. He can't be that for you. He can't feel that for you. And I'm just warning you, when you have that expectation, when you dump that expectation on him, funnily enough, your husband will end up developing more and more hobbies and interests outside of the home to escape from under the weight of that expectation. Because he can't do it. And guys, let me just say, the thought of this domestic goddess who's going to take care of every single one of your physical and emotional needs is going to lead to an unreal amount of conflict in your relationship. So what, a number of smiling faces out there. So what happens is a man comes into a marriage and says, well, my wife is supposed to be this. Or a woman comes into a marriage and says, well, my husband's supposed to be all of this. Or singles are thinking, well, if I could just find this kind of a woman, if I could just find this kind of a man, everything would be okay. And all of our hope is wrapped up in these people who are going to fail us and let us down at times. And then when they let us down, it's definitely not my fault. I mean, it's all them. It's nothing to do with me. It's nothing to do with my expectations of them. It's all them. It's all their fault. Listen, Having counseled so many couples over the years, what I've seen played out so often is that married people are acutely aware of their partner's weaknesses versus their own personal strengths. It's like, she doesn't do this. She never does that. She, she doesn't do that, but I do this, 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 and this. It's my strengths versus your weaknesses. And that is a contest that I am always going to win. I'm telling you, that's what leads to the unraveling of so many different relationships. It's an expectation that's unrealistic. The bar needs to be lowered. You must stop making an idol out of a broken human who's inevitably going to let you down in some way. And then, the other relationship where I see this playing out massively, specifically in the church here actually, is with our children. It's like our whole life revolves around our children's routine. Now, I know where I'm treading here. I know this is slightly dangerous territory. I know I may well get some flack for this. But your children's routine or their extracurricular activities shouldn't govern your home. They shouldn't dictate what you can and can't do the whole time. And I'll tell you why. First of all, making kids your God who dictate everything to you turns them into these selfish, lazy, obnoxious individuals, and I'm not looking at anyone in particular right now, who think the world revolves around them. And that's just setting them up for a whole load of unpopularity and frustration later on in life. And the second, 
one day your children are going to leave your house. And I know right now, maybe they're five, six, seven years old, but there is going to come a day where you love them with all the love you have in your heart for them right now, but they are going to have to get out of your house. And then, do you know what you're left with? Your spouse. So, if the focal point of your whole existence is your children, and then they're gone, that puts you in this really weird place with the spouse who you should have been doing life with this entire time. Listen, biblically, a home revolves around a husband and a wife, or a parent, under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ, on a mission together as a family to glorify Him. What we should be imparting to our children is the wonders and glory of a Creator God who loves them and longs to save them and rescue them from the fallen hurt of this world. We need a model to them that our ultimate mission in life isn't to be a top ballerina or footballer or musician or intellectual genius because I'm not being harsh here but let's be honest your kids are probably never going to be that they, they might get somewhere close but they're probably not going to quite get where you have put them on the pedestal of getting sorry to kind of burst a few kind of illusions there In his grace, Jesus calls us to live for him and then all these other things we get to enjoy in right perspective. We can enjoy the ballet or the football or the music or the education or whatever, but none of these things were intended to replace him. I'm telling you, Your kids make rubbish gods. Your spouse makes a rubbish god. Your image, your intellect, your job, your possessions, your reputation, all of that stuff makes rubbish gods. However much you want them to, they just don't work as God. And so what tends to happen when people begin waking up to all of this is they turn to religious idols instead. I tell you, these are just as bad, if not worse. Because those who worship religious idols think all the time that they are now being devoted to God, but they're not. So here are some of the religious idols that I've seen people worship. And again, just to say, all of these things are good things that can get twisted into a bad thing. First of all, I think truth can often be made into an idol. It's like we end up resting in the rightness of our doctrine rather than in the work of Jesus. Book of Proverbs refers to such a person as a scoffer. The scoffer is always sure he's right and always disrespectful, disdainful, mocking towards his opponents. And the Bible calls such people fools, You know, a lot of Christians end up worshipping truths 
and theological soundness more than they worship God himself. I also think that spiritual gifts can be an idol. It's like our whole Christian identity can very easily get wrapped up in whether or not people value our contribution or our worship leading or our preaching or our small group leading or our drink making or our hosting or our prophetic gift. And so we end up getting all of our worth and our significance from what we do for God rather than what God has done for us. Another common religious idol is morality. Again, it's typical for Christians to feel that God loves them and will bless them because of their moral record, because of all the things they do for him, because of all the laws that they keep. It's like our standing before God is based on how good we are rather than on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You know, one of the most frightening things about the Gospels in the New Testament is their portrayal of religious people. Remember, these were the people who were so caught up in all of their religious activity, they had no time for Jesus. And these were the people that Jesus saved his strongest, most stinging words for. We need to be so careful. We don't fall into the trap of serving idols in the name of serving God. Then, of course, very quickly, also a whole bunch of cultural idols. In an individualistic culture like our own, the individual is an, is a, an idol. I am God. No, no one can tell anyone else they're wrong. No one can impose their beliefs about God on anyone else. End of the day, really any ideology can be an idol. Free market economics, communism, socialism, democracy, liberalism, feminism, atheism, whatever. Now look, here's the point of all of this. None of these idols really work. None of them do. Whether it's personal idols, religious idols, or cultural idols, none of them, at the end of the day, are genuine God replacements. And the next line here in Habakkuk 2 is going to tell us why. Verse 19, woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? I mean, it's covered in gold and silver. There's not even any breath in it. God's saying, God's pleading, don't fall into this trap. Don't rely on things to help you that are powerless to help you. I'm trying to show you how this works. I think basically it starts off with you defining yourself a hell. It's not the real hell where you're separated from God in eternal torment. It's a make-believe hell, a trivial hell. But in your mind, it is hell nonetheless. Hell then is being single or married, or fat, 
or ugly or poor or unloved or not having any free time. It's having a load of duties or obligations. It's not having any pleasure. It's having to get up in the morning and go to work. It's the pressure of my job. It's the people I have to work with. It's like you define the hell that you can't live in and that you need to find deliverance from. And so then you decide, well, I need a saviour. I need someone or something to rescue me from this hell. A credit card, someone to have sex with, a new car, a change of church, a facelift, children, whatever. And so what we do is we choose idols that we hope will rescue us and make us a little happier, and increase our feelings of self-worth, and make things a little more heaven-like for us. And then we devote our lives to living for these things, and worshipping them, and sacrificing all of our time, and our money, and our energy for them. So, for example, some of you are single. For some of you, not all of you, but for some of you, this is your hell, and your saviour in your mind will be a spouse. So you keep looking for someone to worship, to give yourself to, someone who will rescue you. Some of you who are married and feel trapped in your marriage, you, you do exactly the same thing. Others of you are lonely, and your hell is loneliness. So you choose for yourself a saviour, a friend, a group of friends, or a pet because you tried the friends and they're not dependable, and you worship that friend, that group of friends, that pet. You'll do anything for them because they're your functional saviour, saving you from your make-believe hell. That is, by definition, idolatry. It's having created things in the place of Creator God for ultimate allegiance, value, and worse. And here's the problem. There are times in all of our lives where we desperately need divine intervention. And if at those points in your life you are your own God, or your spouse is your God, or your children, your health, your wealth, your job, or your appearance, you will find yourself godless on a day when you need divine help. Because the things that you have put your hope and your confidence in will have absolutely nothing to say to you. They won't be able to fix you or help you. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? When it's covered with gold and silver, there is no breath in it. Verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So the picture you've got here is all of these false gods that have nothing to say to us. They're speechless. They're powerless. And then you've got God in his holy temple, and we're to be silent before him. Now, just to explain, 
I don't think this is saying, don't talk to God. Just leave God alone. I mean, he's in his holy temple, so just shut up. That's not what this passage is saying. It's saying, since the creator God of all things is speaking, maybe, just maybe, we should listen to him. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite God to speak to us. And then we're going to get intensely personal. I'm going to try and help you figure out what your own idols are if you haven't already figured that out. I want to pray and invite God to come and speak directly to us right now. Heavenly Father, thank you. You created everything. You rule over everything. You see everything. You see right into our hearts. You see our greatest frustrations, our greatest needs. You see our weaknesses. You see where we've got things wrong. And I want to ask you right now that in your love and care for us, you would open our eyes to things that we have replaced you with in our lives. I want to pray you would almost expose our idols right now, that where we've put things ahead of you in our affections, where we're relying on things to save us that have no power to save us, I want to pray reveal truth to us now. Amen. Amen. Well, if I do my job properly, you are going to feel a little bit uncomfortable for the next 10 minutes, just to warn you, because I'm going to try and ask you some probing questions. I'm going to try and help you get to the root of your idols and mine, because I tell you, I'm guilty of this as well. I thrive on being busy. I don't like giving up. I take pride in battling through obstacles On my day off, I relax by achieving things. If at the end of my day off, I haven't done something or achieved something, well, I've failed. And so for me, it's success and drivenness and productivity that that drives me constantly. I think that's one of my idols. And I tell you, it works well in my line of work. I mean, no one's going to criticize me or think ill of me for wanting to be productive, for wanting to produce results. So I think I found the perfect place to hide. Or I had until my back gave way and I was forced to slow right down to the point of lying down doing nothing for the last two or three months. I mean, it's been quite tough for me. It's also been something of an eye-opener. I've had to acknowledge that actually, I can't do everything. I do actually need help. I've had to get my identity in something other than what I do. I've had to come to God for the strength just to get through each day rather than doing everything in my own strength. So I think one of the challenges for me is to ensure constantly that my motives are right. I'm not losing sight of the one who it's ultimately all for because it's for his honour, it's for his glory, it's for his renown. It's not about me. How about you? What are your idols? Here's some questions for you to think about 
and reflect on. Here's the first one. And in all of this, I want you to be honest. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands after each question, but I just want you to be honest. What are you most afraid of? What is your greatest fear? You see, perhaps that reveals what your idol is. Sometimes it's simply the thing you're scared of most. Now, I'm not thinking of spiders or snakes or heights or anything like that. It's more the thing you're scared of not having. What are you scared of not being? What are you scared of not happening? You're scared of being alone. You're frightened that no one will ever love you, that you'll be stuck in the same dead-end job, that you'll be found out, that people will see beneath the mask. People will think, of you in some way. What are you afraid of? What's your greatest fear? How about this one? What do you want more than anything else in the whole world? If I told you right now that you could have one thing, I have the power to give it to you, what would you choose? Righteousness? Holiness? Godliness? Contentment? Probably not. Would you want to be beautiful? Would you want to be rich? Would you want to marry someone beautiful and rich? Would you want a spouse? Would you want a different spouse? Would you want a TV? Would you want a bigger TV? Would you want a bigger TV than the bigger TV? What do you want? How many of you, 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 in the past, you've got that thing you wanted, you got tired of it, and you've now moved on to something else? Because idols never satisfy us for long. What do you want more than anything else? How about this one? What do you sacrifice most for in your life? Maybe you think, I don't do sacrifices. I don't kill goats. I'm not talking about that. You sacrifice money. You sacrifice time. You sacrifice energy. You sacrifice your mind and thought to it. What are you sacrificing for? You're saving all your money. To get what? You're working all those extra hours. To do what? You might just find that that is your idol, what you sacrifice most for in your life. How about this one? If I could change one thing in my life, that would be blank. You fill in the blank. People in this room who would choose beauty, if I was skinny or if I was pretty or if I had more hair, that would change everything. I mean, take much longer in the shower in the morning for starters. I mean, others who wish they were cleverer, could earn more money. Maybe it's a spouse, a house, more kids, less kids. If I could change one thing in my life, what would it be? Another question. Where do you run for comfort? Ah, (laughs) good answer. You know, we live in this peculiar world that offers all of these false gods and saviours. We're bombarded with them daily. I mean, just watch the adverts on TV to see the gods offered to us to save us from our hell. They're telling us that there's a hell and we're going to live in it unless we consume their good, unless we consume their product. What they want you to do, run to the shops and buy their product for your comfort. Where do you go for comfort? The shops? Porn? Facebook? 
We even have something called comfort food, don't we? Whenever we're down, we, we head for the chocolate until we find ourselves in fat hell. And then to save ourselves from fat hell, we turn to the diet saviour and we try the diet saviour until we find ourselves in hungry hell. And this is the way that idolatry works. It doesn't work. That's the problem. So what are you afraid of? What do you want more than anything else? What do you sacrifice most for? What what would you most like to change about your life? Where do you run for comfort? How about this one? How do you explain yourself to other people? I find this really curious. I mean, I, I meet lots of people in my job, but I find it curious how people introduce themselves. Hi, I'm so and so. I live in this particular area, which is their way of saying, I'm really important. Uh, I'm incredibly rich, or I'm really very humble. Well, they say that my name is so-and-so, and I do such and such for a living, which perhaps means that my idol is tied to my role and my title. Or my name is so-and-so, and I'm married, and I have so many kids, because perhaps marriage and family is the idol. How do you explain yourself? How do you introduce yourself to others? Another question, what do you boast about? you know, I'm so good at this. You know, did, did I tell you the story about what happened the other week? And oh, what happened at work? Did I tell you about that promotion I got? You know, my kids are doing great at school. In fact, if you've got the time, I've got the last five school reports here just to kind of read out to you. I mean, what do you boast about? Because usually boasting is linked to your idol. This is the thing I value and I want everyone else to know about. A couple more questions what do you treasure the most? If I said, you could get rid of all the people or all the things in your life apart from one, what do you choose? I've got two kids and a wife. Tough one to answer. If I said you had to get rid of all your earthly possessions apart from one, what would you keep? What would you cling on to? Your PlayStation? Your iPad? Your mobile phone? Definitely the iPad. But I I think for a lot of people, it's probably their mobile phone. Who's on O2? Any O2 people? I mean, this last week, for some of you, you were probably hyperventilating when it kind of went went offline for 24 hours. I mean, how can I live without my phone? I mean, I can't stay connected to everyone. I mean, what could you, what would you not want to? get rid of? Or if I said you could get rid of all of your roles, all your responsibilities except for one, what do you keep? What do you treasure the most? And then lastly, what has caused you to be angry with God? You say, I'm not angry with God, aren't you? Maybe a little bit. I want you to be honest. Have you ever been mad at God? Angry, frustrated with Him? Why? Well, because he didn't do his job properly, really? He failed you? You're saying God sinned against you? I wouldn't quite put it like that. Well, let's just say it like that. God sinned against you. He made you angry. He wronged you in some way. Okay, I I did get angry once. How? Well, I had this thing that I wanted. I wanted to get that job. I wanted a little more money. I wanted other people to value me. I wanted to be a little more important. I wanted to be loved, promoted, educated, to have kids, and and God failed me. Do you see? We create these idols 
that end up mattering so much that we plead with God to give us our idol for us to worship in place of Him. And for whatever reason, He won't give it to us, so we end up frustrated and angry with Him. It's like, there's this thing, there's this idol that will save me from my misery. He won't let me have that idol, and so I'm doomed. And so what happens is, we end up getting frustrated with Him because we think He's bad for not giving us what we think we need. Let me make a suggestion. Won't you assume that God is good and that He does love you and that maybe He isn't giving you your idol right now because He doesn't think it's good for you? It's not that these things in and of themselves aren't good, but just that maybe they're not good for you at the moment because you want them for the wrong reasons. End up dependent on them as God instead of God. And because He cares for you so much, God isn't going to give you an idol to worship instead of Him. I'm not going to lie to you. I can't promise you peace or prosperity or love or significance. can't promise you success or promotion, health or security. But my question to you is this. If I offer you Jesus, is that enough? If I give you God... Is He enough for you? Are you here to, to use God in some way to get a bigger God or a different God? Or are you here ultimately to enjoy God because He is enough? I believe right now He'd want to plead with you. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life worshipping created things when you can worship, when you can have relationship with, when you can enjoy the creator of it all. So what are we to do with this? What should we do if we're getting a little bit convicted by all of this? As we draw to a conclusion, I want to lead you through four very simple steps. And if any of this has been relevant to you, I want you to go through these steps right now. First of all, Honestly, just by yourself, recognize what your idols are. Maybe as I've been speaking, things have come to mind. Something's hit home. Ask God to speak to us. Maybe he's been speaking to you. It's going to give you a few seconds, just in your own mind, quietly, just to make a mental note. Okay, maybe I have got an issue with this thing. Maybe that thing has become an idol in my life. Maybe this thing is my functional God. Just in your mind, make a note of those things. And then second, having recognized them, you need to repent of them. You need to turn away from them. In the Old Testament, they used to smash their idols. We do well to follow their example. We need to break our idols. We need to say, I'm not going to give my life any longer for the worship and the pursuit of this thing. Now please, I just want to say one more time, I'm not saying that most of the things you would consider as idols are necessarily bad things. It's just that they're often 
good things, elevated to God things, and as such, their grip and hold and power on your life needs to be broken. Also, this is important. Please don't hear me wrong. I'm not advocating that if in your mind you're thinking your wife is your idol, I'm not advocating you leave your wife. Uh, if you're thinking well, my kids are my idol, I'm not advocating disowning your kids. If you think my job is my idol, I'm not saying give up your job or throw in the towel with your education. No, it's your heart, it's your mind, it's your motives that need to change. You need to repent. You need to change the way you think. So again, I just want to leave you some space to do that, just quietly in your mind. You come to God and say, God, I'm so sorry. These are the things, be specific with him, these are the things that I've put in place of you. And God, with your help, I, I want to break their power, their control on my life right now. Maybe for the first time you're saying, God, I give my life to you. Maybe you've known him for many years, but just lost sight of him a bit. God, I'm coming back to worship you and you alone. So give me some space now, just quietly where you are. You need to recognize your idols. You need to repent of them. Thirdly, you need to replace them because you can't just stop being an idolater because you are created by God to worship something. You, you'll get rid of one idol, you end up doing what? Creating another idol to worship. We get an idol, doesn't satisfy, so we get another one and another one and then another one. Christians do this all the time. I, I used to drink used to have multiple sexual partners, used to do drugs, used to fight all the time. Now I don't do any of that kind of stuff. Well, what do you do instead? I obey this long list of rules. I'm trying really hard. I serve in this ministry. I mean, I'm very spiritual. I've signed up for four different life groups. I mean, great. So now you worship yourself and your own good deeds and your own performance. What we need to do is replace all of these idols with the worship of the one true God, the only one who can satisfy us. And then we can rightly enjoy all the things that God has created for our pleasure. And then the last thing we need to do is just need to rejoice and worship God. Because we are worshippers. We will worship something. If we don't raise our hands to God, we will raise them to something else. If we don't cheer the goodness of Jesus, we'll cheer our favourite hobby or hero. And here's where I'm going with all of this. If we get this, worshipping Jesus enables us, frees us to rightly relate to all created things. It's like I can drink and not get drunk because it doesn't rule over me. I, I can eat without eating to excess. I can have friends without worshipping their approval. You see, my security, my love, my acceptance comes from Jesus. I can do my job without sacrificing my wife and my kids on the altar to it because I worship Jesus. He puts everything else into perspective. In fact, our job, our singleness, 
our spouse, our kids, our ministry in the church, all of these things, all of life are opportunities for us to worship Jesus as we live for Him in every area of our life. And so I want us to worship Him. Maybe you could stand. Mark's going to lead us in a song. It's a song of response, really. Uh, I hope you've already been doing business with God. And as we sing this song, as we sing this song, want you to use it as a vehicle just for you offering yourself to God all over again.